Welcome everybody to the business podcast where we pour out weekly business lessons from entrepreneurs and business owners from around the world. I'm your host, Super Joe Pardo, and my guest today is making his dreams come true by looking at goals as a puzzle and then solving those puzzles. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are right now, I need you to give a big warm welcome to our guest, Frank Cottle. Woo! Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. You are very welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come on the business podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Why don't you get started by giving some background about yourself, Frank? Well, let's see. I'm out here in Newport Beach, California. Um, been here all my life. Uh, it's uh, just too lazy to leave, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> no, we have five, six now generations of family here in, in Newport Beach. We're an old ranching and farming family here in California. Uh, I started my career, call it, in, uh, I'll call it in 1970. Let's do this by decades. Uh, <clears throat> after getting kicked out of the first of two colleges that I attended, uh, I decided I would uh, spend some time uh, sailing. Uh, and so I raced uh, sailing yachts uh, and um, uh, worked as a commercial diver for a while as I was going through college. Uh, and I raced uh, big sailing yachts around the world, uh, <clears throat> enjoyed that for a bit, met a lot of very interesting people. Uh, also, uh, one of about five guys that we started a very large or very successful, I should say, it wasn't large when it started, yacht brokerage. We ended up being the largest yacht brokerage in the world when I sold out in about 1980. Um, between 80 and 90, uh, I decided to enter the commercial real estate business. Uh, and we um, built uh, buildings uh, trying to do a land banking uh, project. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we uh, uh, decided we wanted to build the smallest buildings we could find, least amount of bricks and mortar on the biggest piece of dirt possible something that would tie up that land for about 10 years in the path of progress. And we discovered these funny little things called executive suites. And that was about the most revenue per square foot we could generate on a commercial building. And so we started building dedicated projects uh, that we would put um, executive suites, now called business centers and co-working centers, into those projects and get an enhanced yield and then sell them. So for 10 years... Uh, we built a new project every 110 days. A uh, new building broke out of the ground, so a fairly good pace. Uh, and uh, ended up with 42 projects across the southwestern United States and uh, sold that portfolio in 1990. Liked that business a lot. Uh, it was very good to us. And so we built 195 more projects over the next 10 years uh, and sold that portfolio right at the height of the dot-com era in 2000. Um, discovered I didn't like the business model that much. I loved the business, but I didn't like the business model. I wanted to change from a property company to an operating company and now to a technology services company, a software as a service type company, which didn't exist back then. And year 2000, 2001, there were just a few, few companies like that. And so we laid about building what we have today, which is the Alliance Business Center's group of companies, uh, we have 15 companies operating in 700 locations in 52 countries. And uh, it uh, runs on a model very similar to Best Western Hotels, uh, but we added the funny twist to it. 
uh, called Alliance Virtual Offices, and that really is uh, very much like Expedia. We're a wholesaler of officing uh, around the world uh, throughout our industry. Uh, we also operate the industry's largest news and information network, uh, the industry's largest charitable foundation, the industry's platform for uh, meetings and conventions, uh, and a, a variety of other things. So we decided part of our business model was not just to build a good company, but also to be industry activists. We felt uh, that by growing our industry, we could help our own company and others succeed. So that's what we've done. Wow. 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 So, so let me see if I get this straight. So your current model is like, is basically co-working space. Um, we don't actually own the spaces. That's the difference. Um, we decided we preferred to own the customer than the space. And, and I'll look at Expedia with what Expedia and hotels.com and companies like that have done. Uh, they basically said, <clears throat> we want to own and service the customer, but we don't necessarily want to own the hotels. We do the same thing in commercial real estate around the serviced office industry. And I'll describe our industry, uh, define it, I guess. Um, our industry is comprised of all providers that combine people, place, and technology into a single bundled product and deliver it with a highly flexible service agreement. Um, we gain greater efficiencies by combining those things together, as you can imagine, and the service agreement adds flexibility. So <clears throat> if you look at companies and what all companies need, as we're talking about entrepreneurs here, um, all companies need uh, as many clients as they can get, of course. Uh, they need access to capital for growth. And they need flexibility. You know, because if you can tell me what's going to happen tomorrow and how you're going to adjust to it, uh, if you've got fixed leases, fixed overhead, fixed employees, fixed debt, um, then boy, you're a better business person than I'll ever be. Um, so flexibility is key to what we provide. And within our industry, we have different sectors, uh, just like the automotive industry, um, you could say. Um, in the automotive industry, everybody knows what a car is or the automotive industry is. They take a, a motor, a chassis, and a wheel, and they move people around. We take people, place, and technology and add flexibility to it. Um, <clears throat> so we create an officing product instead of a transportation product. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, just like in the automotive industry, you have different sectors. You have luxury cars and SUVs and sports cars. Well, we have business centers, uh, co-working centers, incubators, accelerators, logistics centers, culinary centers, media centers, et cetera. And each of those sectors, just like in the automotive industry, you buy a sports car, you expect fun. Uh, you get a luxury car, you know, you've made it. There's a brand promise that comes with those sectors. And in our industry, it's the same. A business center provides uh, people, place, technology, uh, and uh, a professional business, uh, excuse me, professional image and services. Um, a co-working center takes those same three elements, adds community, and provides business growth through uh, an active community structure. Um, an incubator adds mentoring to either one of those two. Uh, an accelerator adds uh, access to capital to an incubator, et cetera, et cetera. So each sector has its own promise and, it, and really its own name and definition. 
but it's all part of the same industry. Oh, wow. So, um, so I, I guess that, I mean, that makes sense. I, to not have to put up with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the struggles of, of doing, uh, buildings, but I mean, the, the, the pace in which you were doing buildings before that's, uh, how many, how many employees did you have before when you were doing what, like a hundred, you said a hundred some buildings a year? No, no, we, we, we were doing a building every 110 days. hundred um, and, and, and we used contractors for labor. And, and so, so we were really more of a property development management company. So our employee base wasn't terribly large. I, I Honestly, I don't remember how many employees we had, uh, but it was probably only about 15 to 20 uh, oh. core employees because uh, you're using contractors, outside, uh, architects, engineers. Uh, basically, the skill sets of a development company are finance, uh, modeling, um, <clears throat> uh, the ability to organize and do project management. Uh, and we had a very cookie cutter structure because we knew exactly the kind of building we wanted. We knew the exact locale, just like a franchise company does almost. We knew the locale, the all the requirements for a successful project. And, and fortunately, most of them were successful. Um, so, uh, you know, if you do anything long enough, you either get good at it or, you know, <laughs> something else happens. And, uh, you know, we, we were lucky, I suppose. So with your with your current uh, business, Alliant Virtual of, uh, Offices, what were some of the first steps you took to get started when you were like, we're going to we're going to start this up and we're not going to own our buildings this time? Well, I, if, if you look at the, the concept um, of owning the customer instead of the center, the first thing you need is inventory. You need centers. So the very first thing we built was the Alliance Business Centers Network. Uh, which, as I said, works uh, a little bit like uh, Best Western Hotels. Um, we have owner-operator member centers that join our network, and, and they pay us a fee to join the network, and then we provide a variety of services to them. Uh, but that gave us inventory. So now we had a global inventory of facilities. We have about, uh, oh gosh, uh, 15, 16 million square feet of, of commercial office space for uh, access right now um, in, uh, like I say, 700 locations in 52 countries. So uh, that gives us a, a platform. Thereafter, we had to build the technology and the business model and convince the industry to use the business model, to allow us to use the business model, um, of wholesaling. So um, <clears throat> just like um, a reservations agent in the travel industry has a wholesale discount on a room at a hotel or a seat at an airplane. Uh, we have a prearranged uh, discount model with the inventory uh, that we place our clients into. And then we become the client. We become financially responsible in the center or in the, the property uh, for uh, the payments and, and we collect all the money and, and manage, manage the entire process. So could you go into a little bit about how you went about building out that network? Was it because of pre-existing? I mean, cause that many countries, that many, you know, rental spaces, like that seems like you either have to know a lot, a lot of people or know like two or three people who already own all that, all that space. <laughs> well, we, we were fortunate. We'd been in the industry for a while and, and uh, I'm a really friendly guy. Uh, so we had a lot of, a lot of people we knew all over the world. Uh, and, 
uh, one of the things that we did, and, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we're very involved in the industries, meetings, and, and conventions platform, um, is we hosted a lot of meetings around the world on behalf of the industry and on behalf of our, our growing network group. So that allowed us to uh, make friends, connections, and establish business relationships uh, globally. That was that was part of um, I don't call it a strategy. It was part of the service we felt we needed to provide. Um, it was an educational component to the industry. Um, or you have to remember we'd already been in the industry twenty years or so when we started this, so we had a bit of experience. Uh, we'd been the already been the largest private operator of serviced offices and business centers in the world, uh, and already bought and sold a number of companies and. And so we, 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 we kind of had a, a, a good basis to start. So mm. I think if, if, if you look at what we did, <clears throat> it wasn't particularly amazing as a journey. Um, we started as a property company because it's, it's pretty concrete. You can figure that out pretty easily. All it takes is, is capital, really, and, and then not making too many mistakes. And if you make mistakes, being able to outlast the market where you made them. So, you know, you sit on a piece of dirt long enough, it's going to be more valuable. You know, look at Manhattan, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it, that, that you, can, you can make some mistakes there. And so that was a natural thing. Uh, then we looked at that business model and said, well, that's good, but it's pretty expensive to build buildings and uh, pretty tiring. And, and uh, you know, you get tired of dealing with cities and <laughs> all the development issues you have to deal with. So... We accelerated it and went into a business services model. Well, then you look back in time and say, what started happening in the late 90s? Well, you had that dot-com thing boosting up. And so we sold the business services model in uh, 2000. Uh, good time to sell stuff, as you might remember. And said, well, what's the next generation of business going to look like? And we said, well, it's going to be technology. So we changed our model uh, and the valuation of the company from a business services model, which is based on a multiple of EBITDA in a private structure and a multiple of earnings in a public structure, um, over to a software, which is based on a multiple of revenue. So it gave us a new business model uh, to meet the next generation of what we felt was uh, important. And it also allowed us to embrace the entire spectrum of products in the industry. We didn't have to guess necessarily which location was going to be best anymore or which uh, model was going to be the flavor of the month or uh, when was the right moment to buy land or the right moment to take a lease. Um, we just had to build the platform the platform and the technology and then do the marketing to attract the customers to the value of the industry at large. And having done so, um, we removed a tremendous amount of risk and created a substantially greater value for the effort that we were putting forth than we had in our previous business model. So it was very much an evolutionary. Uh, we got smarter, not dumber. <laughs> now you you said uh before that um you had you, you come from a line of uh entrepreneurs and people you know living living out in the the california specifically southern california uh no both both uh northern and southern california or central and, and and southern california in california we've got uh southern central and northern and and uh central sort of is from about uh 
oh, the Napa Valley wine country on down, uh, and uh, southern is sort of from Santa Barbara on down to Mexico. Uh, so we were pretty much in, involved uh, in, in those areas. Uh, I've been been out in California really since before statehood. So um, we're when I say we're an old ranching and farming company, you know, call my grandmother, uh, you know, Juanita. Uh, we were an old California ranching company. <laughs> <laughs> um so but were you the first in the building industry for your family um that you know my, of i mean my, obviously yeah no know. i'm thinking i'm thinking my, my my dad had invested in real estate um uh but not a lot um most of the investment in real estate was related to um the core companies which are in the food production and distribution business so warehousing uh cold storage uh, things of that nature but i was the first one that started um uh developing a commercial office space so how did your family take it when you were like i'm i'm going to do this thing uh that like isn't ranching and isn't dabbling in in oh, real estate oh well well uh the uh, most most of the ranching and stuff had been uh gone for a while we still had some farms and some things and when, when i was growing up and a few things but uh, we were mostly in the food distribution and production um, uh, business. Um, and uh, it was funny, uh, you know, I was uh, doing the yachting thing for the first 10 years. We built quite a successful company. Um, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and when I sold out and, and, and explained to my dad what I was going to do, he said, well, Frank, it's good you finally put your long pants on. And I, I'm looking and I said, geez, we just built the biggest company in the yachting industry. What, what do you mean? He says, well, now you're doing something serious. I went, okay. <laughs> Great. It's man. not as tangible, you know, oh, the I, most, especially yeah, for, yeah. The most fabulous <laughs> mentor and, and person you'd ever want to know. <laughs> no, I could, under, I, I, I could definitely uh, envision that conversation. Uh, you know, it, cause, you know, but it's 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 also a different generation too, right? And and coming from the the food industry and and something that's a little more tangible than like oh, yeah. these yacht things that like oh yeah know, yeah no we we aren't we fed, necessarily a tangible thing. No, we had a wonderful client base in my dad's company. We had a large school systems, state hospital systems. Uh, federal government in forms of uh, the armed forces and, and different large wow. in what are referred to as institutional in feeders uh, and a lot of restaurant supply ship chandlery that sort of thing so it was very tangible business and like my dad used to say you know there's one thing people got to do and they got to eat <clears throat> so no matter what the good or bad but they're going to eat in fact he was quite a speculator at times uh, you, you know you know the commodity markets and there's if you look at the farming commodities, you have you've probably heard you know soybeans and pork bellies and fryers and all that sort of thing. And my dad had an interesting reputation. He'd buy, say, well, I'll buy um, half a million pounds of pork bellies. And he'd buy that on the commodities exchange in Chicago, and then the market would turn against him a little bit. And he'd just always say, ship it. And all of a sudden. You know, three, four railroad cars full of pork bellies that show up on a siding and next to a cold storage plant, and we just sit on them till the market turned again. So he was a speculator with a good hedge. You could could have called him the original hedge fund guy. 
So <laughs> ship it. Those, those were famous words around our house. <laughs> Frank, what's your hobby outside of business? Surfing, sailing, cycling, um, activist sports. Uh, uh, I'm not a golfer. Uh, I don't have the patience for wandering around in plaid pants, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so I like, I like things where there's an immediate payback and, uh, and sometimes if you make a mistake, you feel it, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not afraid of a little pain. Uh, so I, I still am very actively involved in a, in a variety of water sports and my, my wife and I travel can quite a bit. Uh, and we, uh, we like to uh, always uh, do cycling, uh, when we're traveling instead of run a car, we'll take some bikes and say, well, we can see that country. We'll take some bikes. And so we, we take that approach. Wow. That sounds awesome. Uh, um, with the, with the, uh, the weather though, is it, is it cold there? Cause I see you're wearing a jacket. You're wearing a well, jacket. Well, I'm wearing, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a jacket cause I left all the windows open. I, I live on an Island. I left all the windows open on the ocean side of the house today. And, um, <clears throat> it got breezy this afternoon and I thought, well, I'm going to have to sit here for about, you know, a while and, and I'm going to put a little, a little coat on, a little pullover on. Uh, uh, so, but I'm, I, I am where I won't stand up and, and, and do through that, but I am wearing shorts and flip-flops too. That's the typical beach, beach wear here. You wear a, a sweatshirt, shorts, and flip-flops. Looks totally stupid, but it's very comfortable. I don't think it's stupid at all. I wear a sweatshirt with, with shorts all the time because <laughs> my, my body will get cold before my legs get cold. Yeah. My, my legs are the ones that got all the hair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I just real quick want to remind everyone that they're listening to The Business Podcast. I'm your host, Super Joe Pardo, and I'm talking with Frank Cottle. Frank, what's been the biggest roadblock for you? Well, I don't think any of us accomplish as much as our imagination perceives we might um, or that, that we could because, you know, the brain's a funny thing. It moves in 50 directions at once, and the human being, uh, I can't. Um, but I, I don't know that I've had any real roadblocks, um, possibly partnerships that you choose that don't work out quite the way you would hope they would, but they don't stop you. They're not a roadblock. They're, they're a bump in the road. Uh, I think, um, uh, maybe I've just been lucky. Uh, but you know, you work hard, you have a solid idea, you put together a good team, you capitalize it properly. Um, nothing should stop you. Um, save a catastrophic event, like, a being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when a nuclear bomb goes off, um, uh, you know, uh, um, the, it's just a matter of application, uh, to what you want to do and consistency, I think. And part of that is uh, the, the absolute need to always build a good team. And a lot of people say, well, I, I build a good team around you. No, you really want to become part of a good team and, and have the whole team be peers. Um, we are all leaders in, in our company. And, and matter of fact, we, we have a little uh, conversation uh, with everybody that joins our company uh, right when they're joining the company or when they're interviewing, actually. And we explain to people the one thing that will get you fired quickly, that you will lose your job, is if you do not make decisions. So we empower everybody to make decisions for their own position and even all around them. If, 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 if heaven forbid, somebody's not around that's above them or below them, so they have to make those decisions. 
And you can't go running to somebody and say, what should I do here? What should I do there? Don't make the decision. If you screw up, we'll fix it. The one thing that slows all companies down is not being loaded with decision makers. And so that's something that we learned early on in the construction and early in the yachting industry. Um, you're racing a sailboat from here to there. Somebody comes back and say, well, should I tighten this or should I adjust that or should I head up or head down? You've lost a race right there. Everybody has to make decisions and uh, hopefully it doesn't kill anybody when they make the wrong one. No, I, I think that's uh, really powerful that, uh, you know, I'm all about empowering your team and, and empowering yourself. Um, you know, they always say like, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Right. So, right. absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think it's really important that, you know, not everyone's going to be the smartest at every single thing, but like to get the the right players at the right positions, sure. uh, that are, that are expert at that, at that, what they need to be expert at, um, mm -hmm. is super important. And I, and I think it's really interesting that you're, um, that you, you, you identified that the, the, the decision-making process is what slows things down. Cause I, I, I think that um, it is really frustrating that the bigger the organization, the slower it moves. And I think that uh, it, a lot of that comes back to like, you know, not empowering your, your team to make those decisions and to empowering them to, um, you know, it, it's okay to, to make a mistake. And, and the part of that, and I always go back to like with, with my clients, like, look, if if you're not factoring in your mistakes as part of what your your cost is to doing business, then you're not really factoring in your cost of doing business, right? Like those are things that you need to be able to account for um, when mistakes happen, or or even price, you know, costs rise, you know, the things that are beyond your control. Well, you know, there there's an old uh, country western song, and I forget the fellow's name exactly now, but he says you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. <laughs> and and I I think the issue there is you're going to make mistakes. You have to recognize you've made a mistake. Uh, the, the 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 biggest challenge with mistakes, um, being on the wrong path, is staying on too long. Okay, you don't know when to fold them, so to speak. Uh, um, <laughs> if you make a mistake, go darn, I made a mistake. Boom, I'm out. I'm done. I've, I've made that mistake now and then deal a new hand, deal yourself a new hand immediately. Um, <clears throat> let the good things run long and make the bad things cut short. And, and if you can make, even if you make 60% of your decisions are wrong decisions, but they only last 10 or 20% of their life, then the other 40% that you've made that run for decades that are right. Um, that's what creates a success. Um, it, it, it's that cutting the bad ones short and letting the good ones run long. You know, I, I I've seen it and I've seen it with, with uh, trusting people for too long that, mm -hmm. you know, aren't, aren't, don't have your best intentions, whether it's intentional or in, unintentional or just a bad decision on your part for the, you know, picking the wrong person at the time. And just, you know, it's, it's like, you don't back down. You don't back down. You just keep, keep on, keep on, keeping on, regardless of how things are going. Yeah, that's the that place old, is on fire. <laughs> sure, that's that old insanity definition. You know, doing the same thing and over and over and expecting a different outcome. The, the, the uh, house is on a, fire, it, but the bed's comfortable. So I'm just, yeah, it, I'm just exactly. gonna stick with it. <laughs> exactly. You know. <clears throat> Frank, what was your childhood dream growing up? I think to 
uh, kind of following the footsteps of uh, my dad and 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 my uh, my grandfather a little bit of um, being a serial entrepreneur, um, being totally independent. Um, and I know when my my wife uh, and I got married, uh, we were married young. We got married in college, uh, and uh, she was at twenty and I was twenty one, and. Um, and I told her right then, you know, big bravado of a young guy and on her thing and says, well, I'm going to live exactly the way I want. We're either going to be millionaires by the time we're 30 or we're going to be bums on the beach. And being the sweet, wonderful woman that she was and still is today, she just said, okay. Um, so unfortunately we ended up being millionaires and living on the beach as well. Um, uh, of course that's kind of easy when you come from the beach. But the, the, the point was I was going to do what I wanted. I was going to follow my, my ambitions and my dreams. And she was great, wonderfully uh, supportive in every way possible for that and, and a huge, huge contributor to all of, all of what we've done. Um, but I wasn't going to sacrifice the fun factor. And I think that's why I went sailing and, 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 and worked around the ocean, which is one of my, my key things that I love when I was young. Um, I wasn't ready to settle down and I've never been, I've always believed college has taught you to work for somebody else, uh, which is why I suppose I got kicked out of the first college um, I attended. Actually, I was at, re, asked not to return and there's a big difference. <clears throat> but um, I, I believe that, you know, if, if you could learn how to make decisions in college, then no matter what your degree and, 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 and what your specialization, you will, have, you will have come out with a good education, learn how to make those decisions. And that's why we tell people today, if you can't make decisions, you really can't work with our company. Um, you have to have the courage. That takes courage a lot of times. Um, but I, I was able to blow off a lot of steam and, and kind of live a, a, a fantasy life for a number of years um, uh, as I started. And, and what I saw doing that um, when I was younger, I, I saw a lot of mistakes that people made, um, and a lot of things that they, where they worked and they sacrificed and they slaved, uh, for the first 40 years of their career, building a company or building something that was highly successful, very, very successful. Uh, but by the time they got there, they were on their third trophy wife and, uh, their kids hated them and everybody's waiting for them to die. And they didn't have their health and they were just, buying a big yacht to take one trip around the world. And that was it. They were done. Uh, well, that's dumb. So I'm just going to enjoy every day. Uh, I did then I do now. And, um, you know, I'm, that you just have to enjoy every day. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, uh, I think being able to like listen and, and take in and, and, um, learn from other people's stories. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started this show in the first place was to be able to listen and, and, and take in more. Um, one of my, my downfalls is I don't, uh, read books, but I do write them. Um, but I, I have so many conversations with people that I pull the books that they have within them out to, uh, to, to enjoy for myself. So, uh, well, I'm I'm not a big reader of books myself. I mean, I I I, I read a lot of history and I read a lot of autobiographies and things of that nature. Um, um, I'm I'm fascinated by history, but I don't. Uh, people say, "What's your favorite business book?" And you know, I usually hem and haw and say, "I don't have one." 
uh, well, who's your favorite entrepreneur? And I kind of think, well, maybe Thomas Edison. And and they go, what? And I said, well, you know, I, I really look towards people that invented things that weren't necessarily standing on the shoulders of others, but were truly inventive. Um, I don't look at iterative thought as much of an invention or anything that we've done as we haven't invented anything. We've stood on the shoulders of others, uh, made improvements as we moved along. Um, but when people say, well, what do you read? I say, well, I read every piece of news I can get my hand on all day long. Uh, uh, I, I think that if you don't know what's going on in the world, you aren't aware of all the activities in your industry. Uh, if you're not the best student of your industry, then you won't be as successful. And so I try to constantly be a good student, uh, and I find most business books are put together by consultants and they just want to. You know, they're consultants, what can I say? Uh, and it's usually three years old by the time it gets published, so it's not new information. Uh, so I'm, I'm just not, uh, I don't fall into that category. No, I, 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 totally, uh, I totally hear you on that. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, most of what we're, you know, it, it's most of the things I do read is news um, at, at this point. Um, and then documentaries i love documentaries mm -hmm. so like when i'm working out i'm watching a documentary while i'm working out uh because i want to learn about things that i wouldn't have any access to otherwise yeah yeah um, no, that, so that's I'm very much the same way you know visual learner uh i like listening but i you know mostly like watching and 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 being like visually engaged so um, and then talking to people like that's 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 it for me. The big things. I mean, the, the new you know reading the news too. But um, so I totally get it. And and you know I always feel guilty because I always feel like, man, I could be doing like I I always feel guilty when people are like, what do you mean you write books yet you don't read books? And I'm like, I, I don't want to take in too much uh, outside influence and and like like you know influencing my work because my work. That I that I do I feel is is quite different when I show it to other people and I'm like I've never seen anything like this and I'm like, well that's good it was supposed to it's supposed to be that way <laughs> I'm not I'm not taking you know what somebody else did and and doing it again so um, sure. then I but but unlike uh, well unlike with the, the the people you were talking about consultants the uh, I, I self publish so I don't have to worry about two three four years of like. <laughs> Waiting for my book. Well, to that come out. that's one of the one of the benefits <laughs> of the world we live in today. You can self publish and and self produce, uh, and so that it's. Uh, I think that's 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 great for all of us. We're uh, not just seeing the potentially commercially successful ideas that an editor or or some publishing house uh, feels might they might make money on. You're seeing a lot more original thought, and original thought is uh, truly to be treasured. And they can, and you can pivot it so much quicker. You know, you can make changes so much quicker than like, oh, a new version, and it's going to have to take, you know, six months just to go through an editing process, and then you have to fall into like, where's the release date of that, and you know, things like that nature. Um, so I think, I think the flow of information, you know, the flow of the internet has changed that so much. No, that's why we run a a news and information network. I mean, it's the same thing. We're running the news uh, for our industry or man managing a big portion of it and getting it published and, and getting it out there. Uh, and it is, it's that daily information that, that really helps people. As long as it's not just noise, it has to be real quality. 
Um, <laughs> otherwise, uh, it's, it's just, you know, some blogging fluff uh, for search purposes. And, and that, that gets awful tiresome. So, so the first chapter of my first book is called No Fluff because I, you know, the few books that I have read, I've always thought to myself, and maybe you feel the same way, like, man, there's a lot of useless stories in these books that they're just trying to, like, use to, to make a point, like, that when it just instead of just delivering the point, it's like they got to fluff it up and give these stories that... You know, maybe they'll resonate with some people, but like I look at it and I'm like, well, that's a pretty silly story to put in to to make the point that like don't forget where you're where you're at or where, don't forget your place. And it was like I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get religious, but if you look at most books that have lasted for a thousand years or multiple thousands of years, in many cases, um, uh, they have things like here's ten rules to live by. That's pretty much it. And then there's the stories about different things and, and that's it. But when it comes down to it, what do you remember? Oh, those 10 rules. <laughs> so just just publish the damn 10 rules. That, that's my idea. No, I, my first, my I, 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 I want it in a memo. I want it in a memo. <clears throat> no, I, I hear you. I mean, that's why when I told people what my first book was going to be, I was like, it's 31 life-changing concepts. It's probably about 100 pages long, double like size 14, double-spaced with lots of pictures. Well, <laughs> I was like, with 30, 31 concepts, you've out now outdone Buddha. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, it's just it, you know it's things like that. Like I was like, just get to the point and and be really really um, intentional about every single word that's in there, because uh, otherwise, to me, it's just like I, I wouldn't want to write a book that I wouldn't want to read. Well, but did you ever consider that life never changes? It's only people that change. So you really can't have a life-changing concept. You can only have people-changing concepts. That's that's a fair point. I mean, well, we would be like, wouldn't at that point it would be the 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 noun version of of life, or is life always a noun? I don't know. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not an editor. I'm a writer. <laughs> but okay, no. But the point being, like, or possess the possessive word. There of you like, go. Like there you your go. life, my life, type thing. Not like life as a uh, macrocosm or something like that. Anyway, with all that said, Frank, what's your dreams for the future look like? Oh, I think um, to do more good uh, in the world. Um, uh, we uh, started uh, last year um, uh, a charitable foundation. Uh, we looked across our industry, which is the basis for, for most of our thinking, and as a company, and we looked across the industry and we thought, well, all in the commercial office industry and in our industry in particular, which is very short term, you know, people, place and technology, all three of those things. Um, uh, we looked across our industry and we said, well, you know, in a good year, we're 93 percent physically occupied. And in a bad year, we're 88 percent physically occupied. So we always have a vacancy factor. And so we thought, well, we should calculate how we can put the vacancy in commercial office space and in our own industry to good use. So we created a charitable organization, a charitable foundation, and now we, I don't know how many companies we host, but we have a few hundred locations that we've set up across the United States to 
host and house other charitable organizations by donating our vacant office space uh, throughout our industry. Uh, so we've learned to take a wasting asset, vacancy, if you didn't sell it that day, it's gone, uh, and turn that in to support um, a, a variety of, of other charitable organizations that need help. Uh, and so we're going to be doing quite a bit more um, uh, work in that in that vein. We think there, it shouldn't just be something as, as small as us in our industry, uh, uh, but it should, uh, although we in our first year of operation, we've probably done about five and a half, six million dollars in donations in our first year. So it's, it's, it's not a small charity. Heck, I'm bigger than Trump. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's a real thing. And we've been talking with a lot of very large property companies, a lot of large corporations and even government saying, you know, when we look at your office space, we look at your um, all the desks that are empty because you planned on expanding but didn't or because you market turned against you and now you've got a 10-year lease and it's half empty and there's all this extra wasting space and we look at all the repurposing for charitable reasons that could go into that. So I think a lot of my own ambitions will, will go that direction through the next uh, few decades. Oh, that's awesome. And that, that's, an, that's an incredible amount of uh, uh, charity donation that you, you have going on there. Well, we're we're very very happy, but we really think we've just scratched the surface. Um, we think this can be, can be quite a, a large movement, if you will, and and it's very um, uh, environmental in many respects uh, because you're taking waste and putting it to, repurposing and putting it to use. It's a sort of our own recycling program, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, if if every airline that had an empty seat gave it away to somebody in need. Um, if every hotel that had an empty room contributed to housing on a temporary basis, um, every restaurant that's food was past due date or uh, maybe they'd overcooked the fish or something, who knows what. And a lot of restaurants, it's very common within the restaurant industry, they're engaged in a, a feeding of the hungry program. Um, but it, this can be expanded quite materially. Uh, that's part of part of what we're working on right now. Mm. Ah, that is awesome. Um, Frank, how can people connect with you online? I think the, the easiest way is uh, reach out uh, through alliancevirtualoffices.com. Alliancevirtualoffices, plural, dot com. Uh, or if they just want to know about our uh, industry, uh, go to allwork.space. Allwork.space. So, all workspace. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, no, it's also I will have those in the show notes at superjoeparo.com for everyone to go and check out and uh and yeah it's is um does the website enable you to get in contact with you if you want to um if you want to uh like have your own like have your space up for for rent? Oh yeah. Yeah, we we work with uh all variety of of uh, office operating companies um and we have a consulting group that uh, uh, develops uh, centers and, and buys and sells businesses within our industry and, and uh, uh, develops licensing programs for investment groups and, and consults with quite a, quite a number of large institutional investors from the, 
the very largest uh, private equity firms that you would certainly be aware of um, on down. So we're, we're very, very active in, in all aspects of our industry. Awesome. 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 Um, so I, you know, I, uh, I really appreciate you having on the show today and I'd love to have you on the show again. Is there any last thoughts you'd like to share? No, just, you know, tomorrow's going to be warm and sunny in Southern California. You know, we're, we're, we're just going to have, keep doing what we do. And, and, uh, you know, we wish everybody a, a good evening. Is, uh, is, is it the fire's been affected you at all? No, we've been very fortunate. The fire has been very devastating uh, to a, a lot of people. And it's sort of, uh, you know, South Florida has hurricanes and California has fires and uh, Oklahoma has tornadoes. And you know, there's always something that you have to be cautious of and, and uh, work around. And for California, it's wildfires. Hmm. You know, I live, I live surrounded by water, so I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that regard. <laughs> I have to, I have to worry about uh, tsunamis and things like that, but not fires. Yeah. The tsunamis aren't that often, are they on the California no, coast? No, no. And, 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 uh, uh, <clears throat> the, um, in Southern California, the way the, our coast works or the way the coast works along the Western U.S., um, we're not exposed to the tsunamis as they are uh, in the north, northern part of California or uh, the Oregon, uh, Alaskan uh, coast that kind of jet out and catch different swells in different directions. So um, it, it, it's more of a local joke than, than anything else. We, we had a tsunami last year and we all went down to the beach to watch it. Uh, just like they tell you, you shouldn't do, but we couldn't really see it. We thought we saw it, but we weren't sure. <laughs> well, well, thank you again, Frank. I really do appreciate you taking the time tonight to be on uh, the Business Podcast. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Business Podcast, uh, just all I can do is just ask that you share with someone who will get something out of it as well. Uh, it, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to my guests, and it'll mean a lot to the person that you choose to share it with. Frank, thank you so much again. I really do appreciate your time. My pleasure and anything we can ever do to help, always call. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Business Podcast featuring Super Joe Pardo. Get more business content at superjoepardo.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on The Business Podcast, send an email to joe at superjoepardo.com. The Business Podcast is copyrighted to 234 Solutions, LLC.